Please turn with me into your Bible, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and today we'll be in verses 41 to 48. Psalm 119, and we'll begin in verse 41. There the word of Christ says this. May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. So I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be ashamed. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking that you might, Lord, open our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, we ask that you would teach us today. Lord, teach us from your word. Lord, that we might know your ways. And Lord, that we might be established to walk in the pathway of liberty. Lord, the pathway of your commandments. So, Father, we pray that you would teach us and guide us today. Lead us into all truth. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, the word of God says there, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather of hearing the words of the Lord. Right? This warning from the Lord through the prophet Amos is not a unique experience known only to the generation of Amos. But this is the reality that has been true of many generations. And even today, right, even in America, even in Oklahoma, in the Bible Belt of the United States, where there's a church on every street corner, we can say with great confidence that there is a famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord. Though we live in a very religious time, and much of the religion we see is the Christian religion, but what is practiced today in many churches is void of the word of God. God's word is not central to what is taking place in many of the churches. They're placing very little emphasis on the word of the Lord, and the people are not seeking God through his word. Yet there are many who boast, great boast, about how much they love God, about how much they serve the Lord, about how they long to be with God for all eternity. But how can one love God truly, and how can one serve the Lord faithfully? How can a man entertain the hope of being with God for all eternity who does not now in this life Seek the face of God through his holy word. We cannot love God without loving his word. We manifest our love for God by loving his word and his people, right? By seeking to know God through his word. But this is very rare. It is very rare today to find someone who loves the word of God. It says in 1 Samuel 3.1, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And the word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. The word of the Lord was rare. Rare because people were not seeking it. People did not want it. And so God did not give them the word of the Lord. This is as it is in our own day. Though many people have copies of the Bible, though many churches claim to believe the word of the Lord, it is very rare to find someone who loves the word of God, whether that be a church or an individual Christian. But may this not be true of us, but rather 
may the attitude of the prophet of Psalm 119, may this be what is true of us. So let's go to Psalm 119, and we'll pick up in verse 41 today. There it says, May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. Here, he desires for God to continue showing loving kindnesses to him. And here we see that the basis of our relationship with God is his loving kindness given to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our salvation from start to finish is because God chose us to be objects, to be vessels of his loving kindness, of his grace, of his mercy. It was the love of God to us that brought about our conversion. It is the love of God to us that progresses our salvation through our sanctification. And it is the love of God to us that will perfect our salvation when we are glorified on the day of Christ. Our salvation from start to finish rests solely upon the grace of God given to us. And that is what he's praying for here. He's pleading that just as God has been merciful to him up to this point, he wants God to continue being merciful to him, that God's loving kindness would continue to flow to him. And this is as we should pray as well. Romans chapter 5, in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, will we be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There, the love of God poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God demonstrating his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? God's love manifested towards the elect while they were still sinners. So it can't be on the basis of anything that they've done because they are still sinners against God when Christ died for them. This is the basis then of our salvation, the unmerited free love of God given to the elect, him demonstrating this to us. And now that we've been justified, will not God continue to show his love for his children? Of course he will. This is Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. Romans 8, 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, will, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? 
Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is what the prophet wants to be true. He knows that nothing can separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But he wants to experience this, to know this more and more and more. He wants this to be manifested in his life in greater and greater ways. Confirmations of God's love to him. God's love being poured out into his life. So he wants the loving kindness of God to come to him. Now the question is, what does this mean? What does this look like? In what way does he want God's loving kindness to be manifested in his life? Well, notice what he says. Your salvation according to your word. Right? The love of God, his loving kindness always leads to salvation. And salvation always necessarily has to do with sin. Salvation from sin. The love of God is manifested to the children of God through their deliverance from their sins. And this is what he wants more than anything else. Already, because he's a Christian, God has already delivered him from the penalty of sin. As it says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he wants to experience this, this deliverance from sin, in all of its aspects. Not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin and from the very presence of sin. He wants the loving kindness of God to bring about his sanctification. To deliver him more and more and more from the power of sin. And according to the prophet, one cannot rightly understand or rightly desire the loving kindness of God apart from a proper understanding of sin and apart from a desire to be delivered from sin. If a person does not want to be delivered from sin, then he does not want anything to do with the love of God. He has no part in the love of God. For God's love to a man his salvific love is always in relationship to sin, to being delivered from our sin. Now, I say this because many people teach the love of God. Many people talk about the love of God. But very few speak of the love of God in relationship to sin. They never talk about sin. They never talk about judgment. They never talk about repentance but they speak often about the love of God. But how can we talk about God's love without talking about sin? Right? If God's love cannot be rightly understood without seeing it in relationship to the sin of men, then what is this love that is being proclaimed today in so much of Christianity, in so many Christian churches today? People are taught that God loves all men that he loves them all unconditionally, regardless of sin, that all men will experience the love of God, regardless of sin, regardless of repentance. But does the Bible teach this? Does the Bible teach that a man can have the love of God 
who is living and practicing sin with no desire to repent, no desire to overcome it, but who is practicing his sin. Well, the Bible actually teaches the opposite of this. In Psalm 5, Psalm 5, verses 4 to 8, it explicitly says there that God does not love these people, but rather he hates them. Psalm 5, verses 4 to 8. It says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. There, it says it explicitly. God takes no pleasure in wickedness. And when he says that, he doesn't just mean the sins that are committed. As people commonly say, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. But that's not what he says. God hates both the sinner and he hates the sin. Both of them go together. Isn't that what he says? You hate all who do iniquity. He doesn't simply say you hate all iniquity, but you hate all, all the people who commit the iniquity. They are the ones who are the object of God's hatred. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. And the man of bloodshed and deceit, the man of iniquity in this psalm, in Psalm 5, is set in contrast to the psalmist who has the loving kindness of God. So there's a difference, there's a contrast. To the one, God is showing love, but to the other one, the wrath of God abides on this man. God's hatred is upon him. God does not love workers of iniquity, those who practice sin. He loves the elect, and his love to them is seen in that he delivers them from their sin. Deliverance from sin and the love of God. These go together always. Also notice, he wants the loving kindness of God to come to him through salvation according to your word. According to your word. So here again, the love of God, the salvation of God from sin, and the word of God. These three are inseparable. The love of God, the salvation of God, the word of God. All of them go together perfectly in perfect harmony together. God's love manifested to a man by saving him from his sin, and this God accomplishes through his holy word. So God's love cannot be experienced then apart from the word of God. The love of God and the word of God always go hand in hand. Now, this also in contrast to what is commonly seen in the churches today, where people will say, well, we need to show them the love of Christ. We need to be God's love to the people. And what does this entail? Washing their cars, giving food to the poor, mowing their yards, passing out candy at Halloween, providing childcare for them, giving them a hug, doing these types of things. Any number of social activities, community events, actions toward other people. But showing the love of God to the people almost never includes teaching the word of God to them, especially in relationship to their sin, especially declaring God's judgments against their sins. And many of them, in many minds, they would say this is contrary to the love of God. 
We don't need to condemn men. We don't need to judge men. We don't need to preach at men. We just need to show them the love of God, right? We just need to love them is what they will say. But again, how can we show the love of God to a man without the word of God, without announcing to that man what God's word says concerning sin and judgment and salvation? How can we show the gospel to them, which entails that they repent of their sin? We have to tell them the truth. Is it loving to lie to people? Is it loving to tell people that God loves them just the way they are when we know, according to the word of God, that if they don't repent, they're going to go to hell? That's not loving at all. It's actually very cruel and hateful to tell someone those things. This isn't the love of Christ. Mark chapter 10. Jesus, he had true love. True love for people, which entailed telling them the truth about their sin and calling them to repent of their sin even if they walked away from him, even if it upset them and they didn't like what he had to say. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. There, this rich young ruler is living in a delusion. Right? He's living in a lie, thinking that he himself has kept all the commandments from his youth up. And that's why Jesus tells him, Jesus confronts him on this. He puts an expectation before him that he knows that this man is not going to keep, that this man cannot keep, right? To sell all that you possess, because this man is an idolater, and his idol is his money. That's why he won't part with his money to follow Christ. But what is the motive? What is the basis for Jesus doing this? He felt love for him, so he told him the truth. He said what was necessary to bring his sin to the surface so that the sin could be dealt with. But the man was unwilling to deal with his sin, so he walked away. Jesus knows that salvation comes by the word of God, that we are justified by faith, and faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. This is why he proclaims the word of God to the rich young ruler, for salvation comes from the word of the Lord. It does not come by man's ingenuity. It does not come by some new program or some new technique that we invent. It does not come by the winsomeness of the teacher. It does not come by cleverly crafted homilies with well-placed stories or human philosophy. Salvation comes only according to the word of God. And if we are not declaring the word of God, then we have no love for God and we have no love for people. Whatever we may say, whatever we may uh, announce to people, whatever we may boast, this is not the case. Psalm 119 verse 42 says, So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust 
in your word. Because he believes the Bible to be the very word of God, right? because he trusts in the wisdom of God found in the word of God, because he does not keep quiet but speaks up concerning the word of God, then he knows that he's going to have his enemies. Right? He is happy to declare the truth of Scripture to the issues of the day. Right? What does the Bible say about abortion? What does the Bible say about adultery? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does the Bible say about idolatry, about the Lord's Day? Right? This is the way that he's approaching life. He's going to speak up. He's going to say what God's Word says. He believes that God's judgments from His Word concerning every issue are right and true and that these things should be openly spoken of in the world. Psalm 119, verse 39. He says, Turn away my reproach which I dread, for your ordinances are good. But the enemies of God... Right? We know the ordinances are good. We want to speak the ordinance of God. We want to speak up and declare all of God's wonderful word. But the enemies of God, they hate the word of God. They want to speak against God's word, and they will reproach him because of his conviction in the truth of God's word. This should not surprise us, that men hate the truth. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, as it says in John chapter 3. Already in the psalm, he's mentioned multiple times the sufferings that he is experiencing because of the word of God, because of the word of Christ. Notice in verse 22, Psalm 119, verses 22 to 23, says, Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Also verse 31, I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not let me be put to shame. And already we read, Turn away reproach which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Here, when the one who reproaches him rises up against him, when this enemy rises up speaking against God's word, he wants to have an answer. He doesn't want to be silenced by those who are speaking blasphemous words against the law of God. He wants to be like Stephen. Whenever they spoke against the word, whenever they spoke against him, Stephen opened up his mouth and he put them to silence. He wants to be like Christ in this regard. When the enemies of God opposed the word of God, Christ would open his mouth and he would silence those who would say these types of foolish things. He wants an answer to the one who reproaches him because the one who is reproaching him is reproaching the word of God. Right? In this, he's not defending his own name and reputation. He's defending the name and reputation of the Lord. He's defending God's word against the false charges of evil and perverse men. And he wants to have an answer for them. And not an answer from his own mind. He wants a biblical answer from the word of God. This is the way that we should be. We need to know the Bible so that when someone rises up in opposition to the Word of God, we can have a biblical answer for them that will silence them in their foolishness. Isn't this what Jesus did? Well, look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus did this. He did it to the devil. He had an answer for him. And his answer was from the Word of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 said, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, 
he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall, not worship, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. There, every time Satan threw something in his path, some obstacle, Jesus overcame it by the word of God. He had an answer for him. Everything he brought up, he had an answer. Even when Satan misquoted scripture, Jesus corrected him. He corrected him. He confronted him on his misapplication and misquoting of scripture. This is the way that we ought to be. As it says in 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always be ready to give a defense. And the defense that we give should not be our own opinion, should not be our own thoughts. We shouldn't say, well, I think this or I think that, but the word of God. Opening the word of God and showing people this is what the word of God says, that's what he wants. He wants to know the word. He doesn't want it to depart from him. He wants to have an answer for his enemies from the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 43 says, And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. He puts his hope in the word of God. His comfort is found in God's holy word. He doesn't want God's word to ever leave his mouth. He doesn't want to be silent, but he wants to speak up without reservation, even in the face of opposition. Don't let the blasphemer, the blasphemer of God's word, don't let him conclude that he is right, that his logic, that his wisdom is superior to the wisdom of God. But he's saying, let your words be on my lips so that I can silence those who rise up against your word. Isn't this the problem that we often see? <clears throat> the Christians are being silent while the profane, those who are spewing out the wisdom of this world, demonic wisdom, they're screaming with a megaphone and the Christians are sitting in a corner being quiet and being silent and not saying anything in defense of the word of God. Why should we be silent when we possess the truth? Why should we not speak up when we have the word of God on our side? We know the wisdom of God. Why should we let them speak without any contradiction, seeing that they are spewing out demonic, earthly, worldly wisdom? We should not be silent, but rather we should speak up and silence them. They should be silent. They must be silenced. We should silence them with the word of God. Not that all of them are going to walk away and concede defeat, However, with the word of God, we can put them to open shame. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 5. 
2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. There he says, we are destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Whatever speculation, whatever philosophy, whatever thought that comes from man that raises itself up against the knowledge of God, what is he doing to it? He's destroying it. And what is he destroying it with? With the word of God. Isn't God's word compared to a hammer that destroys? Isn't it a fire that consumes? Isn't it the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God? This is the weapon of our warfare. And this is the weapon that he's using to destroy the speculations, the false knowledge of men that opposes the true knowledge of God. This... What they believe is foolishness compared to the word of God. In God's word, the wisdom of it will triumph over all the opinions and the ideas that come from man. Also in Titus, Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Here he says, Titus 1, 9 says, Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to, both to exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. There, he says, they must be silenced. We must silence these people. They're upsetting families they're teaching what they shouldn't teach for the sake of filthy gain, sordid gain. But they are called rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers. This is what they are, and their lies must be exposed by the truth of God's word. This is what Jesus did. He was the master at silencing his critics, those who opposed the word of the Lord. And there were people in his days who were considered to be very wise men, to be great debaters, to be very intelligent men, and Jesus would make them look like utter fools. To the point that in Matthew chapter 22, it says they dared not ask him any more questions. They knew that they could not contend with the wisdom and the truth that was coming out of his mouth. So from that point forward, it says that they dared not ask him any more questions questions but they just said we just got to kill this man because there's no way that we can expose him according to arguments and debates we can't do it he always triumphs over us so we just have to kill him psalm 119 verse 44 says so i will keep your law continually forever and ever Amen. he wants to obey god's law continually he wants to keep it forever and ever. He knows that the law of God, the word of God, is an abiding eternal word. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24, 35. 
He knows that the righteousness prescribed in the law of God is the righteousness that will be true of us for all eternity. This is what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. To be perfected is the righteousness found in the law of God. He knows that the goal of the Christian life, the goal of our salvation, is perfect conformity to the law of God forever and ever. That we in heaven one day will never break the law of God, but we will perfectly keep God's law. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, might, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, which is then defined in the Ten Commandments. He knows that will be true of him in the life to come, but he also wants it to be true of him now. He wants to keep the law of God now, in this life and in the life to come, both in this temporal life and also forever and ever. He wants his life conforming to the law of God, to love God and to love his neighbor, as taught in the Ten Holy Commandments of God. May this be true of me now, and may this be true of me for all eternity. This is the attitude we should have. He does not have disdain for the law of God. He's not chafing under the commandments of God, but he wants to keep the law continually. He is not a casual, superficial Christian. He's not a twofer, right, as we call him. Those who are good for about two services a month. Lowest common denominator Christianity. This is what many people want. They want to know what is the least. What is the least amount of conformity to the law of God that I need to get into heaven one day? Right? What is the minimum obedience that God requires for me to hear, well done, good and faithful slave? But is that his attitude? The minimum amount? Lowest common denominator? No. What does he want? He wants the, the, the pinnacle. He wants to obey God's law forever and ever. We should not be like those superficial Christians. Those who are hot and cold. One day they're hot, the next day they're cold. Always waffling about, flipping and flopping in their faithfulness to God. He doesn't want that to be true of him. He wants to be consistent. He wants to have zeal for God. Consistently hot, eager to serve God at all times. Not only in this life, but forever and ever. To keep the law of God. This is how we should be in our obedience. Consistent in our obedience to God. Psalm 119 verse 45. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. We cannot get discouraged as we live the Christian life. Though the Christian life is called a hard and narrow path. It is a hard and it is a narrow path that leads to life. And Jesus says there are few who find it. It is a struggle It is a war. We are waging war against the flesh. Every day, as Christians, we are called to be soldiers of Christ, to go to the battlefield and fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Isn't this what we have to do? Well, when we're doing that, when we're in the midst of the battle, we might begin to be discouraged and think it's so hard, it's so difficult to live the Christian life. But here we have to see and understand that the Christian life is a life of liberty. I will walk at liberty, he says. It's not a burden to live the Christian life. It is liberating to live the Christian life. The only reason it seems like a burden to us sometimes is because of the flesh. But the flesh is evil and it's wicked. The Christian life is the good life. This is the good way that God has called us to live. To obey God is to walk at 
liberty. Sure, the sinner, he doesn't have to fight against sin because he's enslaved to his sin. The devil is his master, but that is bondage. Sin is the burden. Sin is a heavy burden to bear. But the Christian is not living in slavery to sin any longer. But he is walking and pursuing the path of liberty. He has been liberated from sin, and now he serves a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. The old master, the devil, he was a tyrant. The new master, Jesus, though he is our Lord and master, and we are his slaves, he is not a tyrant. He is not an evil master. He is a kind master, a gracious master, a good master, a gentle master who places easy, light burdens upon his people. The burden of Christ is the burden of liberty, while the burden of sin is the burden of slavery and bondage. Obedience, living a godly life, Right, which in Psalm 119 is defined by observing, keeping, obeying God's commandments. This is not a life of slavery. This is a life of liberty, obedience to God. Look at Psalm 119, verse 33. Psalm 119, verse 33 says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Now, unless the prophet is bipolar, right? Unless the prophet is insane, unless he is a double-minded, contradictory man, then there's no other way to look at it. Obedience to God, obeying the Ten Commandments of God, according to the prophet, is to walk at liberty, Isn't that what he says in verse 45? I will walk at liberty. And this walking at liberty is defined as observing, keeping, obeying the commandments of God. It's irrefutable. There's no other way of looking at it. This is the verse. Whenever these people say that we're not under the law, we don't have to keep the law, we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments aren't for the Christian. Whenever they say that, make them read Psalm 119.45 and you ask them, You interpret this passage for me. What does this mean? What does it mean when he says, I will walk at liberty? In what way? How is this to be understood? There's no other way of looking at it. Biblically speaking, those who are born again and who by the Spirit of God seek the will of God, the will of God found in the commandments of God, those are the ones who have Christian liberty. That is what Christian liberty is. Christian liberty is obedience to the Ten Commandments. And God's commandments are in no way, shape, or form contrary to our freedom in Christ or contrary to Christian liberty. The grace of God is not contrary to the law of God. But rather, these two are in perfect harmony and agreement if they are rightly understood. Rightly understood. The problem today is people don't understand it rightly. Obedience for salvation, that is contrary to the grace of God. But salvation by grace that results in obedience to God's law, this is Christianity. This is what the Bible teaches. This is salvation. It is the grace of God that gives us the power to conform our lives to the law of God. 
And if we are not conforming our life to the law of God, then we do not have the grace of God. We don't have the love of God, and we do not have the grace of God. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12. Salvation 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteous, and godly in the present age. The grace of God, he says. The grace of God has appeared. And what does the grace of God instruct us to do? Does the grace of God appear just so we can get a free one-way ticket to heaven? No. It teaches us to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. Is teaching people to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age or in this present life? Is expecting people to live that way contrary to the grace of God? No. In this way, if you're not teaching that, you're not teaching the grace of God. You're the one that's contrary to the grace of God because here he explicitly says the grace of God has appeared for this very purpose, for this very reason to teach us to renounce ungodliness. Psalm 119, isn't this what he's teaching here in Psalm 119? What is it to live a godly life, to live a righteous life, to live a sensible life? It's the pathway of God's commandments. It is observing the ordinances of God, observing the law of God. Now I say this because many false interpreters, many, many false interpreters of the Bible, false teachers, believe and teach the exact opposite of Psalm 119. The common belief today in the churches, in the seminaries, I know this because I've been to one, in the Bible colleges, is that Christians, New Testament Christians, or New Covenant Christians, are not under the Ten Commandments, are not obligated to keep the Ten Commandments, They don't have to even read the Ten Commandments. They don't need to know the Ten Commandments because they are not for them. They will say that Christians today do not need to keep the Ten Commandments because we're not under the law, we're under grace. That was for the Old Testament. That was for Israel, a physical people, but now we are a spiritual people and God has given us a spiritual law designed for a spiritual people. We've been set free from the law, meaning that we are set free not only from the curse of the law, but also the morality of the law, the righteousness of the law. We don't have to do that. Christianity is not about commandments. It's not about rules. It's not about do this or don't do that. It's just about the grace of God, the grace of God, and then live as you please. They say that we're under the law of Christ. We're under the law of love, the law of liberty which is a different law than the Ten Commandments. As Christians, they say in the New Covenant, we don't need a list of commandments. We don't need specificity. We just love God and we love our neighbor and we'll do as we please. No lists, no rules, no commandments, just love. And in these churches where this is being taught, what do you commonly find? Are people living strict, 
disciplined lives? Are they living obedient lives? No. What you find is chaos, confusion, disobedience, immorality. It's rampant in these churches that preach this cheap, phony grace, this cheap, phony love, this cheap, phony Christian liberty. It actually is demonic. It is demonic Christian liberty. It's not the liberty of the Bible. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. One of the verses they love to misquote, take out of context, to their own destruction. James chapter 1. This is like in 2 Peter chapter 3. They twist the rest of the scriptures. They, they distort the apostle Paul as they do the rest of scripture to their own destruction. Well, they distort James. James 1.25. 125 says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Here, the perfect law, the law of liberty, he says. He means it in the same sense as Psalm 119 verse 45. I will walk at liberty. It is the law of liberty because Christ has changed our hearts. Because he's not keeping it for his salvation, but rather the one who is doing this is keeping it as a result of his salvation, as the manifestation of his salvation. And it is the law of liberty because to obey Christ is to be at liberty. This is what he means here. Also, James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 12 says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty. Not, again, meaning that we have no law, but the law of liberty is the one who is obeying God, keeping the commandments, not to save himself, but because of his salvation. Because he's been liberated from sin, now it is called the law of liberty. Right? The law of liberty is obedience to God's commandments by the Spirit of Christ, right? with a new heart, after conversion, not to earn salvation, but as the fruit of salvation, the liberty of the law of Christ, the perfect law of liberty, is taking away the burden of sin. Right? Christ removes the burden of sin and gives us a new heart and a new spirit that delights in doing the will of God. This is what the prophet means in Psalm 119.45. I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Seeking the precepts, which is another way of saying the laws and commandments of God, is seen as walking in the pathway of liberty. The commandments of God, with the goal of obeying these commandments, that is liberty for the child of God. Now this is a very important concept. We have to understand this. We must establish this truth. Christian liberty is obedience to God's commandments by the Spirit. Christian liberty is not freedom from the moral law, freedom from rules, freedom from any regulations. Many, many, again, people believe the latter, who in the name of liberty, they preach and practice the heresy of licentiousness or the heresy of antinomianism. Antinomianism means anti-law. They are against the law and they teach and proclaim that as Christians, we're not under any rules, any law. There's no standard of righteousness. There's no binding rule for the Christian. Just love God. 
This is what they say. And the result is every vile practice imaginable is taking place in many churches because people are not preaching the Ten Commandments. They're not preaching it anymore. Jude verse 4. Jude verse 4 describes these people. We shouldn't be surprised that these rascals are around because their father is the devil. And the devil loves immorality. He loves sin. He is the one that loves to twist and distort scripture. He's a liar from the beginning. That he would take something good like Christian liberty and turn it into a perversion like Christian licentiousness. That's what it really is. Jude verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What do they do? They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Isn't that contrary to what we read in Titus chapter 2, briefly a second ago, verses 11 and 12? The grace of God has appeared, teaching us to renounce ungodliness, right? Teaching us to live a godly life. Well, they use the grace of God to promote sin, to promote licentiousness, which is the very opposite of why the grace of God has appeared to teach us to put these things away. And they deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. They say, no, no, Jesus is our brother. Right? He's our friend. Right? He's not, we don't have to, to obey him. We don't, we're not slaves. We don't have to live that way. We're free. We're free. Second Peter chapter 2 also. Second Peter 2 verses 17 and 19. Second Peter 2.17 says, These are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man has overcome, by this... He is enslaved. They promise them freedom. Freedom in Christ. Liberty, Christian liberty. We're not under the law, we're under grace. This is what they say. They promise freedom, but the result is what? Slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. This is what they do. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. They promise people freedom. We're not under the law. We're free from the law, right? We don't have to keep the Lord's day, they will say. We can do whatever we please. But what does that result in? It results in destruction. It results in their own demise. They do this not only with that commandment, but with all of the commandments. This is what they do, right? We don't need to talk about law. We don't need to talk about commandments. It's all about the grace of God. And the result is they become slaves of corruption. They won't talk about obedience they won't speak of righteousness. They will not preach from the Ten Commandments. They do not believe in repentance for the forgiveness of sin. But rather, it's all under the grace of Christ. And then they will accuse us of being legalists. They will say we are legalists when actually they are the legalists. In reality, it is they who are adding to the Word of God. And this is not something new 
to our generation. These types of madmen have been around for many generations. Well, we just read in Jude 4 and in 2 Peter that this is what they were doing in that day. Also, this week, Abigail and I were reading a theology book for her schooling, Thomas Watson's A Body of Divinity. And he described in his own generation the types of false teachers that existed. And one of them, listen to what he says. He calls them seducers because this is what they are. The fourth cheat of seducer is to preach the doctrine of liberty as though men are freed from the moral law, the rule as well as the curse. And Christ has done all for them and they need to do nothing. When he says that, he doesn't mean it that we need to do something for our salvation. He means that after salvation, we can just do whatever we want. That's what they're teaching in his day. But he's teaching that no, we need to live a godly life, an obedient life. He says, thus they make the doctrine of free grace a key to open the door to all licentiousness. And this was in England in the 1600s. This is what was being taught. This is what was prevalent in the churches in England in the 1600s. And this is what's happening today. They make love and obedience contrary. Grace and obedience are at odds. Liberty and obedience are mutually exclusive. But this is in contradiction to the very teaching of Jesus Christ. Does Jesus believe love is contrary to obedience? Well, what does he say in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. My commandments, if you love me, he says, Love is not contrary to obedience to Christ's commandments. It is the way we show our love for Christ. They are in direct correlation together. What about liberty? Is liberty mutually exclusive from obedience? Not according to Psalm 119.45. I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts, it says. Psalm 119 verse 46 says, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has courage. He has boldness to declare God's word, even to kings, even to those who have authority in this world. Isn't this the shame of many Christians? That they won't speak up even to the commoners, much less to the king, much less to the one who has authority over them. Many are afraid. They're afraid to even speak to their co-workers, to their neighbors, to their family, to their friends. But he says he's not ashamed to speak even before kings, even before those who have the authority and the ability to take his life away. He's not ashamed to do that. He will speak up concerning the word of God, even before kings. Isn't this what Jesus did in John chapter 19? John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. John 19, verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Here, even before Pilate, who is telling him, Don't you know? Do you know who I am? I'm important, right? I'm somebody. Why won't you speak to me? I have the authority to release you, right? I have the authority to crucify you. 
And Jesus says to him, you have no authority over me unless it had been given to you by my Father who is in heaven. This is the same as Psalm 119. Jesus wasn't a pleaser of man. He wasn't trying to curry the favor of Pilate or Herod or any other king or nobility, a nobleman. He didn't care. He wanted the favor of God. He wanted to please God, not man. He wants to be approved by God and not by man. And this is why the prophet says, I will speak of your testimony before kings because I'm not trying to get the approval of man. I'm not a pleaser of man. I want to be a pleaser of God. And when I do this, he says, I'm not going to be ashamed. What do I have to be ashamed of if I'm preaching your word? If I'm declaring your testimonies to them, there's nothing to be ashamed. Because yes, they may be a king in this world, but who is the ultimate king? Who is the king that is over them? The king of kings and lord of lords. The one who sits in heaven. So yes, you may have your testimonies on earth. And are kings ashamed to declare their testimonies, their laws in their own kingdom? Of course they're not. They pronounce them. They post them. They do those things. So why should we the servants of the king of heaven, be ashamed to announce his testimonies on earth, even to those who seem important, even those who have authority. And there are many examples in the Bible of this. Didn't Moses do this to Pharaoh? He went before him and he told God's testimonies to Pharaoh. Daniel did this before multiple kings. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood before Nebuchadnezzar and told him, we're not going to serve your idol. We're not going to bow down and worship it, right? You can do with us whatever you please, but we will not do that. They spoke of the testimonies of God, even defying the king in his presence. Nehemiah, he spoke up in the presence of the king. Esther and Mordecai spoke up before the king. The apostle Paul, he spoke up in front of many kings and other prominent people, right? They were not concerned with getting their autograph. They were not looking to take a selfie with them so they could post it on anti-social media, as the people do today. They declared God's testimonies before the king, and they did it without any shame, telling them the word of God. Lastly, Psalm 119, 47 and 48. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Here he says it twice. Is there any doubt? He loves the word of God. He loves it. He declares it. I love it. I love your law. I love your word. How can a child of God not have a deep love for God's word? This is one of the surest indicators that one is born again. He has a love for the word of God. If we don't love God's word, then we don't belong to God. It is impossible for someone to be a child of God who does not love the word of God. It says in James 1.18, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He, we were brought forth by the word of truth. That's what the prophet knows. He sees and understands that it was the word of God that brought him forth. He was born again by the living word of God, the abiding word of God. The spirit of God used the word of God to create him, to give him new birth. And now he knows it is that same word that is being used by the spirit to sanctify him, to perfect him, to grow him in his salvation. We are born by the word and we grow by the word. 
A true Christian understands the vital importance of the Word of God to his spiritual life. And as a result, he loves the Word of God. Because of this love, he delights in it. He loves it, therefore he delights. He meditates. He lifts up his hands to the Word of God. Lifting them up, just as a beggar lifts up his hands to the benefactor, asking him to fill his hands with things that he needs. So we come to God as beggars, empty-handed, lifting our hands to the word of God and asking God to fill us, to fill us with his grace and mercy. In our natural state, we despise the word of God. But in the converted state, a man comes to love the word of God. And this is what must be true of us. May it be true of us that we have a love of God And that our love of God's word is growing more and more and more. So that we have an insatiable desire to read it, to memorize it, to meditate upon it, to practice it, to talk about it with others. This is what we need to be doing. This is what needs to be true of us. Do you love the word of God? Do you love the word of God? May we have this same desire and may we love the word of God the way that he does. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for, Lord, your love, your loving kindness to come to us, Lord, your salvation according to your word. Lord, we know that without your word, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. That, Lord, you brought us forth through the word of God, through the living, abiding word of God. And that, Lord, without your word and its effect upon us, we would still be dead in our sins. Lord, we would have no faith. There would be no repentance. There would be no sanctification. We would have no love for you. So Lord, may we desire your word more and more. Lord, help us to see and understand that we cannot have your love apart from your word. And Lord, we cannot experience your love apart from deliverance from sin. Lord, that we might want your love, but want it in the true way. Lord, as it is, geared toward our sin, and Lord, as it comes through your word. Lord, we pray that you would cause our love for your word to grow stronger and stronger each day. Lord, that we could truly say, as the prophet does, that we love your word, that we delight in it, that we meditate on it. So Lord, make this true of us, and Lord, we pray that you would give us conviction concerning your word, that we would not be ashamed to open our mouth, Lord, to speak up, Lord, that your word, you would not take it utterly from our mouth, but that, Lord, at every situation, no matter what the occasion calls for, Lord, that we would have a a scripture in mind. Lord, that we would have some word from you that we might declare, Lord, concerning everything, whether that be helping our brothers and sisters in Christ, encouraging them, Lord, reproving them, rebuking them, Lord, helping them in their Christian life, or, Lord, or whether that be to those who are lost, Lord, those who are dead in their sins. Lord, speaking to them of your judgments and what you say. And Lord, we pray that we would never be ashamed of your word. Lord, even if we stand before kings or those who have great importance in this world, Lord, we should never be ashamed of your word, seeing that it comes from you, the King of heaven, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, as well, we pray that we would walk at liberty. Lord, seeing that, True Christian liberty 
is not contrary to obedience. But the more we obey, the more faithful we are, the more we live the liberated life, the more free we are. Lord, you are constrained by no one. You and you alone are truly free. And whenever we conform our will to yours, so, Lord, we also experience this freedom and this liberty. Lord, may we know this more and more. Lord, we pray that you would continue to liberate us, Lord, from the sin that remains. Lord, whatever weights, whatever hindrances of sin, we pray that we would throw them off. Lord, they drag us down. Lord, they keep us from running the way that we ought. And Lord, whenever a man is unshackled, he is able to run freely, Lord, without these hindrances. And Father, we pray that that would be true of us as well, that you would unshackle us from the sin that remains, that you would give us the power to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil, Lord, to wage war against them every day, and that you would give us greater and greater liberty and freedom in Christ to overcome sin, to be free from its, uh, its power over us, and Lord, to live a godly life. So, Lord, make this true of us and help us to see and always remember, Lord, that whatever it is that will be accomplished in this Christian life, Lord, it will always come through your word. So, Lord, may we depend upon it. And, Lord, give us an insatiable desire, Lord, to read it, to memorize it, to meditate upon it, to hear it, Lord, to speak of it. Lord, may it be on our mind and on our lips at all time. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.